Friends, for us human beings, the resurrection is indeed the most phenomenal experience. But not so for the Son of God. For the Son of God, the most phenomenal experience is not the resurrection. After all, He's the author of life. For the Son of God, the most phenomenal experience is His death. How could the author of life die? We rejoice in the resurrection because He indeed is able to bring life out of death. Well, friends, let's remember, He was able to bring life out of nothing before there was even death. Well, this morning, I would like for us to, to, to look at the entire story of the gospel of the Easter events. Would you open Scripture to the book of Galatians? This morning, we will be reading from chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 12. If you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks or months or year, for last year, we've been in the, in the book of Acts. Today, we're taking a break from the book of Acts. We're looking at, at Galatians 1. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be back in Acts chapter 21. But this morning, let's uh, open God's Word to the book of Galatians chapter 1. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. Also, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one in the, front, in the chair in front of you and take it home. It's, it's yours to take. We, we would love for you to have it. Let's uh, open God's Word and, and read it, hear it, listen it together as God revealed His Word to us. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not there is, that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Or am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? But if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer?
Father, we are so blessed to have this revelation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearing today. We pray by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? O Holy Spirit, bring faith, increase our faith, and may this word nourish our souls. May this word bring life to those who might still be dead in their sins in our midst this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory, and through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, these uh, churches to whom Paul is writing this letter were in danger of losing it. Losing not money, losing not members, losing not tithers. They were in danger of losing the gospel. Actually, look at Paul's description of their situation in verse 6. Hope you keep your Bibles open during the duration of the sermon. It's page 972. Keep it open. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Yes, they were in danger of abandoning, of deserting the God who called them because they were turning to a different gospel. Even though they continued to live like churches, even though they continued to live their religious lives, they were in danger of abandoning God because they were turning away to a different gospel, different truth. Is that possible today? Is it possible today that churches could still go on with their busy activities, with their flourishing experiences, with their religious rituals, and actually be in danger of losing it, losing the gospel? Yes, it's possible. The entire book of Galatians was written to awaken these kind of churches, to call them back from the wrong turn they have made, a turn to a, a different truth altogether. Look how else Paul describes their situation in verse 7. He says, not that there is another gospel, but there's some among you who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Friends, be aware. Be aware. If that danger happened as early as the first century, it can happen today. And it does. I could give you stories about that. Come and talk to me afterwards. Paul wrote this letter to help them recover the gospel, the grand truth of the doctrine of salvation and justification by faith in Christ alone. But notice how Paul starts this letter in verse, verses 1 through 4, speaking about the resurrection and about the death of Christ. Yes, Paul wants to confront these Galatians for, for leaving 
the gospel, for abandoning the gospel. And what is the best way of making them regret such an action? What is the best way of, of shaking them up, of realizing what they're doing? By starting and painting for them again a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's why my title this morning is Recovering the Gospel of the Easter Story. We will consider just the introduction of this letter uh, because it's a starting point on which Paul will build the entire case for calling these churches back to the gospel. And as we look at this introduction, the first 12 verses of this letter, I'd like to pose and I'd like to give you five questions from this passage about the gospel of the Easter events. Five questions. What, this, what did Christ do for His people? What did Christ do for His people? Look at verse 4. Paul says about Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. Thursday night, we meditated on the purpose of, um, of the Lord's Supper, the last supper that Jesus had with His disciples. How Jesus used that celebration, that supper, to define the meaning of His death. And the last supper was a visible definition of what Jesus was to do the next day. And that definition was that by dying on the cross, Jesus gave Himself to them. And that definition was, was seen in the, in the mere act of, of taking bread and giving it. In the mere act of taking the cup and giving it so they could drink it. It's a death for all those who repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And when, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. But, but Paul gives us here another interesting detail about the Lord Jesus giving Himself. What did He give Himself for? Today you hear people use this expression, He, he gave Himself for a great cause. Right? You might hear that expression. or You might hear this, she gave herself to build this great organization. But what did Jesus give himself for when he died? The Bible tells us he gave himself for our sins. Christ gave himself not for our cuteness. Christ gave Himself not because we look good. Christ gave Himself for us not for our worth. Christ gave Himself not for our potential. Christ gave Himself for our sins. Friends, we cannot think long enough about the death and resurrection of Jesus without being reminded that it was for our sins. It was for our rebellion. It was for our disobedience. It was for our corrupt nature. It was for our desire to live life apart from God, for our desire to replace God as the center of our lives. It was for our sins that Jesus Christ 
gave himself. There are people today who they don't want to think much about their sins. Or they think very lightly about their sins. Some of them, even when they, when they hear us talk about sins or sin, they find it very negative or, or even judgmental. Friends, the reason why we talk about sin is because the Bible talks about it. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is the comprehensive state of all human beings. Such sin enslaves us. In Galatians later, in chapter 4, Paul says that when you did not know God, now think for a moment, when you did not know God, that means everybody here, everybody, me included, when we did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Sin enslaves. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Oh, friends, we do want to talk and mention sin because it's so serious for us. Our world, however, has no cure for sin. The reason why we talk about sin is because it's such a serious condition and also because the Bible provides a cure for it. The world has no cure for our sin. There is no medicine for sin. There is no rehab treatment for sin that you can just sort of work on yourself and, and, and sort of slightly get it off of you. There's no rehab treatment for sin. None of the religious sacrifices of the Old Testament were able to cleanse the conscience of sinners from sin. None of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were able to break the power of sin or to abolish the guilt of sin before the perfect God. That's why God sent His only begotten Son so that Jesus would give himself for our sins. How can we treat lightly or superficially our sins when Christ gave himself for them? But why? What, what was the purpose? Why did God do that? What was he aiming to accomplish by giving himself for our sins? Was it that he wanted to show us how much he loved us? Yes, but more than that. Was it because he wanted to rescue us from eternal hell? Yes. But he was more than that. Was it because he wanted to usher in his sheep into heaven, into the presence of God? forever and ever? Yes. But he was more than that. But you might ask, what more can there be? Well, look at verse 4, at the way it ends. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Yes. It's all of the above, but also this one to deliver us from this present evil age. Now, Paul doesn't call creation evil, but this present age is evil. It has been corrupted by Satan when, the first, when he first attempted to, to tempt Adam and Eve to disobey God, and he accomplished that. And they did 
act against God and rebelled against Him. In John 14, 30, Jesus told His disciples right before going to Gethsemane, the ruler of this world is coming. He's, he's a ruler of this world ever since our creation has fallen into rebellion against God. At that moment, he's the ruler of this age. But Jesus said in that verse, but he has no claim on me. The only, the only human being ever up to that point who, who could claim that, that the ruler of this age has no claim on a human being, the only one is Jesus. Likewise, Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age so that this age would have no more claim on us. So that this age would have no more claim on us. Jesus told his disciples in, in John 17, 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's why Jesus gave himself for our sins. He wanted to accomplish our rescue, our deliverance from this present evil age. The death and resurrection of Christ are relevant for us in the present, not just for the future. There are people today who think that the gospel is simply fire insurance for the future. Or there are people who think that the gospel is just a ticket to heaven to enjoy and cash out when you're done with this earth. Oh, no, friends. That is a distortion of the gospel. The true gospel tells us that Christ's death and resurrection is also for the present. We are rescued from this present evil age. What does that mean? I love how F.F. F. Bruce defines this. He says, Christ delivers us from the realm in which sin is irresistible and transfers us into the realm where he himself is Lord. Romans 14, 9, Paul says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Those who respond to the gospel are delivered from the guilt of sin. They are delivered from the stain of sin. They are delivered from the power of sin, all of which are part of this present evil age. Now, the alternative to this present evil age is not just the eternal future age when we will sin no more. The alternative starts in the present. That's why Paul wrote to Titus. He said about Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That happens now. Friends, those whom God calls to himself form now a new community, which we call the church, which Scripture calls the church, to be a display of what it means to live under the kingship of God, no longer as part of this present evil age. That's why we encourage Christians to, to join churches. 
Because by their love and commitment to God and towards one another, they put on a dis in display an alternative to this present evil age. We put on an alternative. We put on a display of the next age, which has actually penetrated this time, this evil age. That's why church and the life of the church is such an important part of what we're supposed to do as children of the living God. All of this is possible because of what Christ accomplished when he gave himself for our sins. What Christ did for his people? What was the purpose for which Christ did it? How did it happen? This is the third question. How did it happen? Look at verse 4. According to the will of our God and Father, this rescue operation from this present evil age happened according to the will of our God. Yes, it was Jesus who performed it. It was Jesus who, who suffered in our place. But friends, all of it goes back to God the Father. This means that when we meditate on the Easter events, our worship and adoration should not be only to Jesus, but also to God the Father. He willed this entire rescue plan. Colossians 1, um, 12-14, it speaks about the Father giving thanks to Him who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. Our deliverance from this present evil age it's through the sacrifice of Christ, but all of that was the will of God. Now, the proof that God is the one behind it all, that God willed it, and that God was in control of it, the proof of it all is the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's how Paul begins. When he starts in verse 1, he speaks about his apostleship. When he speaks about him being called by, by Christ and God the Father, the first description that, that Paul gives of, of the Trinity of God is in verse 1, who raised him from the dead. Yes, Paul could not start the letter to Galatians without first mentioning the resurrection of Jesus by God the Father. No other father in human creation can rise his son from the dead. No father. I'd like to do many things for my children. But I cannot do this one. I, I cannot raise them from the dead. And there's no other God in the world or the gods previously worshipped that, that are able to do this. Only the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ has been able to raise his son from the dead. That's what makes Christian worship so different, and the, the, God, the God of the, of the Christians so different. When people say all religions are the same, one question to ask them as a follow-up is like, really? So are you saying that all people worship the God who raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead? I say, no, 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 no. That's only what Christians believe. Well, that's the point. Only the Christian God can do this. No other religions or other gods are able to do this. So all religions are not the same. Because all gods cannot do this. Only 
the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ, born of a Virgin Mary in Nazareth, who died under Pontius Pilate, and buried and then was raised from the dead. Only this kind of God is worthy of worship. By the resurrection, we are given evidence that all which Christ accomplished through his death on the cross is true for those who turn to him. I love how Paul in Romans 4.25 speaks in similar language of, of, the, of the death of Christ, but also of his resurrection. Paul says, Christ was delivered up over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Yes, by his death and resurrection, those who turn to God in repentance and faith are declared right with God, no longer condemned. This is the meaning of justification. It's possible because of Christ's death and resurrection. Friend, I wonder, I wonder this morning if there's anyone among us who may have been exposed to religion in the past, who may have been exposed to church life in the past, but I wonder if, if you have responded to the gospel of the grace of God and have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for your justification. On the judgment day, when you will stand before God and God will ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? If he will ask you that question, what will you say? How good you were? That you were trying to be a good person? Well, friends, there's, there's no good answer except this one. I have trusted in Christ to be my sacrifice for my sins. And I've responded willfully, wanting to turn away from my sins and putting my full confidence and my full surrender into the arms of Christ. Oh, friends, without that response, the sacrifice of Christ is of no benefit for you. I pray that you would consider today responding to that. And may the, the, the resurrection message be true of you as well. If you'd like to know more about how to respond to the gospel, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. The physical resurrection of Jesus proves that all that Christ accomplished in his death is true. Our sins are true. But also his forgiveness of our sins is true if we respond to him. And our justification is true if we turn to him. Thus, the resurrection proves that our deliverance from the present evil age has happened. This was the will of the Father. Question number four, to what effect? To what effect? We saw how did it happen. To what effect? Look again at verse four, how it ends. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of, God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you want to know one criterion to discern a true gospel from a distorted gospel? There are many. I'll give you one here today. By asking it the following question, who is the ultimate beneficiary of the gospel? The ultimate purpose of the gospel is not our benefit, but the glory of God. Yes, the gospel brings sinners 
into the righteous, through the righteousness of Christ into a relationship with God. Yes, the gospel brings sinners the canceling of our eternal guilt and the promise of God's inheritance. But at the end of the day, the ultimate, the ultimate end of the gospel is the eternal glory of God, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's many ways in which the gospel can be distorted. But the one easy one to spot out is a gospel which is centered on man and too, has too little concern for God and too much concern for man. We limit the gospel only to what helps man. Such distorted emphases of the gospel fail to make people God-centered in their thoughts. Sin is just a mistake. No, sin is a crime against God. It's not just a mistake. It's not just missing the mark. Sin is not about you. Sin is about the fact that we have affronted God. And until we deal with that problem, we stand condemned. A man-centered gospel will think even of sin as only being a man-centered issue. A man-centered gospel will, will focus on how to make people feel better. But a God-centered gospel will teach people how to worship God on His terms, in the way that He made possible through Christ. The ultimate effect, the ultimate end of the gospel story of the Easter events is the glory of God. But there's another important effect of the true gospel, that God now calls sinners to Himself in the grace of Christ. Galatians 1, 6. Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The effect of this gospel is that God is now calling people to himself. Up until now, that was not possible. Oh, that, 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 that was possible only in a, in a promissory way in the Old Testament. But now that, that Christ has come, God is calling people to himself and in the grace of Christ. Paul speaks of this language of, of God calling sinners to himself in chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Him who calls you. Another benefit. But how do people respond to God's call? Some people flat out reject it. They, they want to have nothing to do with it. Others delay the response. They like what they're hearing, but they say, this is not the time. When I get older, I'll get more serious with God. They delay the response. Yet others who respond don't live as if the gospel is true. And that's where most of us are this morning. The challenge is, do we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? Do we live in light of the gospel? They may, we may claim with our mouths that we believe it, but our life choices don't always reflect it. You know, even Peter, the Apostle Peter, fell in this trap. Just in chapter 2, Paul will describe um, his interaction with Peter. Um, Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, which is Peter, before them all, so this is not a private admonition. This is a public admonition, a public confrontation. If you, 
though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, notice before that, Paul said, this was a matter of not living in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter here is confronted because he lived hypocritically. He lived two different truths. One, the gospel truth, when he was hanging out with the Gentiles, because the gospel did create a unity now between Jews and Gentiles. And the next day, when, when he separated from them, and he, he gave the impression that he has nothing to do with them. Right, you think this is just, just a matter of fellowship. That, that, you know, it's not a big deal. I mean, I'm just associating with some people today, with someone else tomorrow. What's a big deal? Oh, friends, it's a big deal. Because that, that differentiation was a living that was not in step with the gospel. Hypocrisy. Small details, we would say, right? No, they're big. Their life was inconsistent with the truth of the gospel, even in this table fellowship. Now, friends, just because Christians may fall in the trap of hypocrisy, and let me pause here, they do fall. We do fall in that, even though we try not to. Hopefully, we try not to. We, we occasionally do, or more often than we would like to. We fall in it. But even when Christians fall in the trap of hypocrisy, it does not make the gospel untrue. This is one of the benefits of, of living together as a church. Members united together in the covenant of God's grace. When we're committed together to love God together, to serve God together, to watch over one another together, so that when we sidestep into a hypocritical act, into something that's not consistent with the gospel, we can help each other out. We can watch each other. We can hold arms together. We can encourage one another. And that's why we encourage people to join churches. Yet, others like the Galatians, they have turned away. And Paul wants now, for those who, who so turned away from the gospel or were in danger of turning away from it, Paul wants, wants to bring them back. And look at, look at chapter 4. There's a picture here that Paul gives in chapter 4 about what Paul wants from these churches. What is Paul going through as he's calling them back to bring them back to the gospel? Verse 19 of chapter 4. My little children. I mean, can you, can you hear the, the, the warmth? My little children. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Do I need to make the obvious? This is a man speaking, not a woman. This is a symbol. This is symbolic language. Why is Paul going through this picture of, of childbirth again for these Galatian Christians? He says, until, until Christ is formed in you. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to become a Christian. This is what happens when anyone becomes a true Christian. Christ is formed in them. They become a new creation, and they, they believe the gospel, they embrace the gospel, they respond to the gospel, and they start, they start living out in light of that gospel. And given the abandonment of these Christians, of the abandonment from the true gospel, Paul uses this imagery of, of feeling again the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Friends, 
Has Christ been formed in you? I pray. I pray so. And if not, we would love to feel again, or for the first time, the anguish of childbirth for you until Christ is formed in you. I pray that you would do so today. Why should we listen to the gospel? Last question. Why should we listen to this gospel? Or why should we listen to this gospel as opposed to others? In a very basic sense, look at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This is why we must listen to this gospel. Because it's not man's. It's not from man. Man did not come up with it. There are several places in the New Testament where it says that this gospel is the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ. It's not man's gospel. Now for Paul, he, he was in a unique situation that none of us are in. For Paul, this also literally meant that no human being told him the gospel for the first time except the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted one, the resurrected one. So for Paul, it really had a very, very unique application. This gospel he received from the Lord Jesus Christ directly. What about for us? For most of us, we've heard the gospel either through our parents. We heard the gospel through a Sunday school teacher, through a preacher, through an evangelist, through a friend who was faithful enough and loving enough us of us to actually tell us of the good news of Jesus? We heard it through other means, human means. But even in that situation, even in our situation, realize this, friends, that the revelation of the gospel we're only able to see when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see it. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is always a gospel from God. Only God enables us to open our eyes and see. Otherwise, we, we are dead. We hear, but we don't hear. We see, but we don't see. It is the Holy Spirit that accompanies the proclamation of the Word and brings faith to us so that the hearing of God's Word is accompanied with faith. And who is the author of our faith? It's not us. It's not our ability. It's not our intellect. It's Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, God Himself. That's why sometimes people, you, you hear people say, well, so-and-so is such an anointed preacher. Well, somebody could be an anointed preacher, but that's not enough. If the hearers are not anointed as well, the words of an anointed preacher will fall on hardened hearts that cannot get it. Therefore, we need to pray not just for anointing preaching or anointing speaking in the Word. We need to pray for anointed hearts. Hearts that... The Holy Spirit bays with faith so that when we hear the Word, we hear it not just as a Word of man, but as the Word of God, as it really is, if it's faithfully preached. So pray, friends. That's why I asked you at the beginning of the ser service, pray for our church, not just for various needs, but pray that the Holy Spirit might bring faith to us. So when we hear it, whenever we hear it, we might believe it. And that's not just for people who are dead in their sins. Even for us, believers, we need our faith increased through the proclamation of God's Word. Oh, friends, 
we've considered five questions about this gospel of the Easter events. How Paul tried to bring back the Galatian Christians from, from running in danger of a distorted gospel, abandoning the true gospel, and five questions to help us stay on track with the gospel of the Easter events. What did Christ do for his people? He gave himself for our sins. What was his purpose? It was to deliver us from the present evil age. How did it happen? It happened according to the will of God our Father by raising Christ from the dead. What are the effects of it? The effects are the glory of God forever and ever, and now God calling sinners to himself in the grace of God, in the grace of Christ. Why should we listen to this gospel? Because it's not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name for your revelation of yourself to us. And we praise you that when you revealed your son Jesus to us, you also sent the Holy Spirit to bring faith so that our hearing would be profitable to our hearts. Almighty God, we pray that even today, if there's some among us here that have heard these truths before countless times, but they've never responded to it, they have delayed or have put it off, that today you would grant them faith to believe and respond. Gracious God, we pray that to your people who have believed the gospel, you would continue to grant us faith to cherish this gospel, to protect this gospel, to love this gospel and to display this gospel by the way we live together in the congregation and together as, as your people covenant together in your grace. Oh, Lord, make us as a congregation a display of your gospel. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.